You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and the interview subject you've tuned into is Heidi Solheim from the Norwegian outfit Pristine. The reason for the conversation is to promote their 2017 release, Ninja. Let's hear what Heidi has to say. Pristine have a new album coming out on the 23rd of June via Nuclear Blast. What can fans expect? Hi. Uh, well, I think think the fans could expect something a bit different from the, the other albums that we previously released. I think this is a more um, fearless album. And we had quite a different process recording this album as well. So uh, I think you can hear that. It's a bit more funky and a bit more, yes. I would say, psychedelic than yes. the other the previous albums. Mm. Yep. So Pristine... Uh, share something in common with the Swedish band Blue Pills, as they're a bit of a departure for a label like Nuclear Blast. So can you tell me about how yourself and Pristine arranged, not arranged a deal, but how did you come to be on the label like be on a label like Nuclear Blast? Yeah, that's quite of an adventure for me. I, I Previously, I released music in Norway, and I did everything myself, like being a label manager and a booker and uh, yeah, management and all that stuff. And then we had this request to come on tour with the Blues Pills. And suddenly, on one of the gigs in, the, I think it was northern parts of Germany, this guy came up to me, and he's looking so nice and, and very kind eyes and stuff like that. And he came up to me and he said... I want you to be a part of our family in Nuclear Blast. And this was nice. the first time I ever, yeah, <laughs> I ever met Andy. <laughs> and then I just went, what? <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> and uh, we talked, for, <laughs> it was quite funny. And I'm not used to people coming and saying, well, I want to help you. I want to release your music. Yes. And I, I'm yeah. always doing the hard work myself. So this was like quite uh, uncommon. And then uh, I had some time to think about it. And I flew down to their office and I met more of uh, the workers there and it was it was very very kind people and they are very professional they know what they're doing and uh, so that was the the main reason why i just said okay well let's let's make a, let's make a contract <laughs> yeah no fair enough and look there's another point uh, that i'll make about your music you give metal fans a reason to explore new avenues of music because metal fans do trust Nuclear Blast as a label that they can turn to for great music of, of any music under the metal banner. But I know they've done it in the past. I can't name check the bands right now, but between yourself and, and the Blue Pills, there's a reason to get into some of my favourite music, which is classic rock, soul and R&B. Yeah, I think, and I think this is the, one of the most uh, exciting things with uh, with being a part of the Nuclear Blast because I know this uh, that Nuclear Blast is mainly a, a metal label, so it's going to be exciting to see how the new uh, the new album is welcomed. Yeah. And I, I really like it. I really like the fact that that Nuclear Blast is trying to just expand their their genre and just taking classic rock, as you say, and soul inspired music as well. It's the metal, and I think it's a very smart thing to do these day and age. And uh, I think it's uh, it's lucky for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and just on that, like, is there a lot of expectation from the label put on your good selves to achieve? You know, you know, when in the corporate world they call them KPIs, so key performance indicators. Like, in other words, is there an expectation on you to sell a lot of units because you are more accessible than some of their other bands? 
Well, I haven't been thinking a lot about this because I think it's quite, uh, and I think I get really nervous thinking yeah. about what they expect of the sales because this is out of my hands. I can try and do my best to provide good music and good songs, yes. but <laughs> the rest is kind of out of my hands. So I really hope that it's going to be a very uh, a good figure for them. Uh, yep. In the aftermath of the release, of course, I want them to be happy, and I want them to continue to uh, to like to to release our music, of course. Um, but I have no idea. I have really no idea how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, no, good answer. Very honest answer too. I think I think the thing about you know podcasting and the like is fans can actually hear what the artist is thinking. And you're giving them an opportunity. You know, you're giving them a bit of a behind the curtain look as to what the artist is thinking about. When, on the eve of a release, and it is a significant release for you, um, and and giving fans an opportunity to um, go a little bit deeper and understand the psyche of the artist. That's the way I like to put it. Now, I, I do listen to the excellent podcast that Jamie Jaster, you know Jamie Jaster from Hatebreed over in the States? Yeah. Yeah, so he has an excellent podcast, and he almost apologizes to listeners when he goes, well, not, not he himself specifically, but some of the, he wants a lot of the art, artists that he talks to to talk about more of this stuff. So as our fans have more of an understanding, I think the word is the blood, sweat and tears that you put into this and the expectation yes. that then comes from it, because this is your life's work. This is not just a career. This is that wonderful meeting point between professional or chosen career and also passion. Yeah, and I, I feel like my my music and and what I do is kind of an identification of of myself rather than being a job or being a, something of a hobby. So I really I really see it as an equal. Yeah. <laughs> when whenever I talk about myself or whenever I talk about my music, it's kind of the same thing. Of course. And yeah. that's that's pretty scary as well. It's pretty. It's pretty freaking scary uh, because it's so vulnerable uh, because music is all – everyone can have an opinion and everybody does have an opinion about yes. what they like and what they don't like. But what people often don't quite 100% understand is that there's people who, who's making this music and, and, and tries yes. to put their heart into it. And so it's, it's quite vulnerable. And, and sometimes I just feel I'm fucking crazy to do this because I'm just putting my head on like a, what you call it when you have this axe and you have this, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, and, and I do it voluntarily. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do you do put yourself out there, and I have spoken to a lot of artists over the last six months or so, and I have done a number of features, actually, um, where they've gone, you know, when I say viral, uh, have you heard of Blabbermouth? The forum no, Blabbermouth? It's, it's like a, a metal forum called Blabbermouth. Now, some of those, those features are then posted on there, and the feedback that the artist gets, I really feel sorry for them, to be honest with you, sometimes, because they do their share their story, their experience, or they share their observations of what's going on in the world. And we call them keyboard warriors or what's the other term? Trolls. Um, do yes. go after them. No. <laughs> you know, so that, that'll be a good question for you. Um, so not necessarily about keyboard warriors and trolls, but, you know, I'm talking to you in Australia and you're obviously in Norway. How do you interact with fans over the internet? Because that's really the means, of the, means and mechanism these days for you to share your music. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's we have this net trolls we call it in Norway uh, when yep. people when it's too accessible is that a word absolutely yes. spot uh, on yeah <laughs> to just 
uh, to just comment on everything. If it's uh, news on the like war thing or immigration or if it's music or anything yes. to do with online news, it's so accessible and it's so reachable for everyone to to write comments, not with uh, just without thinking it through. I think, yes. and uh, and I, you could see a lot of darkness <laughs> if you just no, go great. to the comment fields, and yeah. and uh, the whole reboot album uh, actually was written on that perspective because I was so devastated of the news picture and that people actually could say and mean the things that they actually do, uh, yeah. if it's about music or female artists or genders or wars and and everything. It seems like this. It's easier for idiots to to say what they mean and it's yes yes no it's a really good point and it's like i've done a lot of thinking about this okay because this is a new venture for me too what i'm doing with podcasting and normally i just write an article but i have switched across and i'm about 21 or 22 episodes deep into my podcasting career at the moment and oftentimes i think with people who provide that kind of feedback online it's just a thought bubble for that moment in time and Mm. i'm i'm choosing to give people of any persuasion whether it's positive or negative feedback. I mean, you love the positive feedback, let's face it. It makes you feel good. But Yes, of course. Even with the negative feedback, it's like if someone just said something to you once on the street, you know, you're at the shopping center or what have you, or you're a place of work or what have you, and you're dealing with a customer or whatever, and they just say something once and then you move on quickly, would you hold on to it? Probably not. I mean, certain things you would, but the problem these days with the internet is literally everything anybody writes is almost there for forever. And yeah. And it's a snapshot of what you were saying and thinking at that time. But, Mm. you know, if you go back and look at what someone said two years ago, they might have evolved from that position that they took at the time. But all you've got is what's written, the quote, you know, they're attributed to a quote. And yeah, I know. And then you have the aspect of the, the thing. Uh, if people come up to you in the streets and call you something, it's it's only to you. But but the things that write in the comment field, it's for everybody. So it's kind of embarrassing as well. Spot on. If yeah. it's like this g- general opinion of your music and stuff like that. So it's it comes with a lot of shame as well. I can. Yeah. I yeah. Can no, really no, relate to that. I couldn't <clears throat> imagine, though, what anybody would have to say from a negative perspective about your good self and the music you create. I couldn't even... Wow. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I could not. Yeah, I, look, this is... I share a bit of my own philosophy about people like your good self. Yeah, sure, we've got politicians. Yes, we've got scientists. But it is the artists. It is the is the vagrants. It is the musicians. You know, it's even the chefs. It's these people who are creating, and you come under this category. You're the ones that make the world turn around. And without you, the world would be a very dark, a very dismal place. So what you do, to me... And I was talking to Ralph Santola, I mentioned him again, I was talking to Ralph Santola about this because he said something like, oh, what I do is nowhere near what an emergency service worker does or anything like that. I said, yeah, look, fair point. But what you yeah. do is so integral integral to people's happiness. It's so integral to yeah. people feeling good about what they do that you may be the reason that that emergency services worker might have had a really shitty day the day before. Now, Heidi, they might listen to your music, for example, and go, that's the kick that I needed. That's the good stuff right there. I'm going to get up this next day or this morning, and I'm going to have a really good day today. Because you, you, you tap into that emotion. Your work taps into emotion. That's, uh, that's, really, that's really moving to hear you talk about this in comparison, because I never thought about this as, a, as an actual thing. And you, ha- you are completely right. And I, I feel it myself as well. Every time I, if I have a shitty day or I'm happy or whatever mood I am in, it's always music related to it. Or or art or yeah stuff like that. 
So yeah, you, yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> oh, I think it's I think it's really mm. important that you 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 receive this feedback and and it does give you. Um, I don't know whether I'm framing this the right way, but the confidence to move forward because you do move people. You have a wonderful voice and you are creating wonderful music and it is this music that I believe, and this is only my opinion, of course, but take it from me, it is music that makes the world turn around. So, so you know, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say, look, I really hope this next album for you was so super successful that you don't have enough time to tour to all the countries that it's successful in, but I certainly hope you come to Australia as well. <laughs> you know, yes, so. that would be amazing. I've never been there, and I, I have this friend of mine who studied in Australia, and she's, she said that she all she wants to do when she gets back to Norway is to, to move back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I really want to come. <laughs> so That's been amazing. So let me ask you that question then. Have you had much interaction with um, fans and listeners in Australia? No, not at all. This is the first time I talked to a journalist uh, in Australia. And even, yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, the two first records only were released in Norway. Yes. Uh, and this reboot album came in 2016 and it was the first album released abroad. So we are pretty fresh in the in the ears of Europe and uh, the world, I guess. So, yep. um, but hopefully not, uh, that's going to change. Well, um I'm going to change track for a little bit because when I was doing my research in preparation for our chat, I found a bunch of videos on YouTube of you singing on The Voice. Can you tell us about your? <laughs> <laughs> that was well. You, you sing very well, so um, you know. Look, a lot of a lot of musicians. Um, only, I've only spoken to Australian musicians about this, but they've got a particular view about what The Voice is. You know where its place is and the like. But you seem to have done very well from it. Well, I I think the voice thing in Norway it's quite different for for me. Um, uh, for me, it was like I know the producer of the show. It's uh, I've been working with some other TV productions, so I knew the producer, and he literally stood on my doorstep and asked me to to be part of the show. And at first, I said no. I think I said no like three times because it's not my thing, I guess. But then he kept coming and calling me and telling me that, and, oh, we have a Hammond organ player and we have a live band and you have to come. So and then eventually I, I sat down and I said to myself, well, the reason why I don't want to do this is because I'm afraid to be taken, not to be taken seriously. And just and, and then I just said to myself, well, if this is the only reason, then fuck it. I just be a part of this and try it out and see if it makes me laugh and if yeah. I like it. And and the minute it stops being fun, I just I just leave. And I did, and I, it was I learned a lot about TV productions, and I I met a lot of excellent people working behind the cameras and monitors and sound and everything. It's a whole machinery, you know. So so it's yes. uh, I really I really really enjoyed it. But I, it had nothing to do with my career. I didn't I don't think it did right. okay. so much for me in the aftermath or previously it was just something i did because it was fun <laughs> yeah so it was a bit of a parallel for you it was it was something to gain experience as opposed to something to yeah. give you some leverage in your career yeah i didn't go in with a, like a big career goals vision or something like that i just i just did it because it sounded fun <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah i'm enough, very yeah. easy easy to to get a lot, to get uh, to do things like that <laughs> How how different is it singing for a televised audience compared to say doing a gig for two hundred people? Because I imagine there is a difference, but could you describe the differences? 
Well, the main difference, I think, is the fact that when you're standing on a stage, um, like with Pristine, I think every time you go go as an audience uh, into a concert and have an amazing experience, it's always a cooperation between the band and the audience. And you kind of lose that bit working with a camera production yes. thing. You have to just trust yourself and you have to, to get the energy only from yourself. And I think that's the main yes. difference because it's always a cooperation between the audience and the band. And uh, um, yeah. yeah, look, the parallel I can draw to that now, look, I, I've never been on TV, but I've played in a lot of cover bands. And believe mm. me, I've played in front of virtually nobody, actually literally nobody on a few occasions. And they were the toughest mm. nights to get through. Um, you know, I used to, it's probably the same for your good self, but uh, there's a couple of places here in Brisbane where you, you back, you know, five or six years ago, um, a place called the Elephant in Wheelbarrow, you used to be able to play in front of about 80, like 80 punters that were actually paying attention to you. So it was the closest thing to somebody like myself would feel to a rock star, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you wanted, you didn't want to stop. You wanted to keep going. You didn't want to take a break. You wanted to play for two hours straight. It was only when you physically almost were exhausted and you'd sweated so much that I couldn't, I play bass and my fingers were slipping off the strings and stuff and, and that I thought, oh yeah, well maybe we should take a break now and go and get a bevy or something like that. But mm. to your point, I imagine singing in front of a camera um, must be a bit similar to when I was in a cover band playing in front of virtually nobody because there's no energy, energy exchange. No, yeah, it's true, it's true. But the, I think the difference is because I, I often looked into the camera and I knew there was like hundreds, thousands of people yes. watching on the other side. And that that's a, quite a scary thought in that small lens, you know, <laughs> on the other side, it's like a whole new world. So you, so you just get your act together and you, you, you really try to perform the best you can, but it's it comes from within you and you have to just get the energy from a, a place where, yeah, I didn't even know existed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's quite an exhausting experience. Because I think you've answered my next question there, which was how do you get the energy to perform in front of that many people? And, and gosh, I hope I'm framing this the right way again, but how do you calm your nerves when you're put into that kind of a situation where, you know, we mentioned that there is no energy exchange, but you know you're performing in front of a couple of hundred thousand people. And be, beyond that, as I said, a bloke like me in Australia is now watching your videos a few years after the fact on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I think um, my main thoughts were around, uh, I think I was just trying to channelize my own emotions to the fact that we were a team. Like we were a uh -huh. team, one guy with the camera and one guy with a sound mixer and we had this uh, producers and, and I was just a singer. I was just a, a puzzle, what do you call it, a brick in Yeah, the, piece the, of the puzzle. the puzzle. Yeah, totally, yeah. The piece of the puzzle, yeah. So it, it, it kind of helped me to think that we were a team who, who were creating a good TV show for people to watch and that I wasn't alone because every time you just – turn inwards and you just feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm just one person and, and I kind of drown in my own, uh, my own nerves. <laughs> yes. you're, you're kind of losing it. So it, it really helped me to think that we were trying to create uh, something together, everyone in the room. Yeah, you don't strike me as someone who would have a problem with nerves though. Um, you sound like really? someone Really? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've spoken to a lot of people and I've done enough performance myself to know. I remember when I was very young and you know, playing in bloody, you know, regional towns, basketball stadiums for kids. I used to get more nervous back then in my early 20s than I do now. 
uh, performing in front of, you know, it could be 100 people or 200 people or so, but that's because you get seasoned as you get older. You know that word, you, you're yeah. a bit more seasoned. I think that's probably the same for you. And Could you even estimate or guesstimate how many gigs or performances you've done so far in your life? Oh, no, I have no idea. I'm so bad at, I don't know <laughs> what I did last week. You know, I'm, I'm so, I'm so scared, scared of myself sometimes because I'm so in the moment that I can't even remember what I did last year in this, uh, how many gigs. And I look, uh, every time I do the accounting from the last year, I just, what the fuck? Were I here? Where, where, what did I do in that town? I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. Yeah, cool. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'd say you've probably done literally hundreds, though, from when you were knee-high to yeah. right now, talking to me now. And it's really only, you know, they, they used to talk about your sea legs back in the day. You know, you get your gig legs, I call them, um, where, you know, when you, <laughs> you know, when you're on stage and something goes wrong, like the guitarist's pedal just don't work or the bass player's cab stops working or the drummer loses a stick or the cymbal falls over or, you know, something detaches, like a bolt detaches. And those sort of situations to a rookie terrify them. But probably to somebody yeah. like you, it's just like, on with the show. We just got to do this. I know, I know. And the, the, this feeling is, is kind of amazing to just know that you can handle like this small crisis. And, and it's, it feels really good to be, to just, uh, to be calm in those situations because it doesn't help yes. to panic. And all the body is just, my head is just screaming at me, panic, panic, panic. And I just go, no. This is going to go fine. We just do this and do that and everything is going to be good. And yeah. everybody's thinking this in the band or, or the, 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 my colleagues. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a good, good sphere to be in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point, that one there. And I think, look, what you've done is you've really been able to articulate to somebody who isn't a musician what, it's, what it can be like on stage sometimes because very rarely do you perform and everything does go right. And, and those nights sometimes they sort of – in a weird kind of way, feel uneventful because you haven't had an obstacle mm. to overcome. Yeah, and that, that's the it creates magic every time something happens and you can handle it. And uh, or or if you don't, it's just we're just people on a stage trying to perform our music. So and I think the audience could sense that uh, this. So if they see that, okay, my guitar player loses sound because the cable is broken, blah blah blah. It just makes us makes the experience more exclusive you know <laughs> i'm gonna so. i've got a i know this is about you and, and not about me believe me but i just want to give you a two-minute story quickly and something that'll be cool for the listeners yeah. to to oh, something for me to share with the listeners but please do i used to do a lot of session work so when i say session work i'm playing cover music so you know about 100 songs or what have you you can turn up to any band and effectively play them now i played the chalk hotel here in brisbane one night and um I was turned up for another band. I won't name the band because they're still playing around, but I turned up for another <laughs> band. And, and, I, and I thought, I've done a lot of fill-in work for them. I got along really well with the guys, the guitarist who ran the band, and being a bass player, I sort of turned up, and we had our own way of doing things. And the singer and I are really good mates too. So anyway, we got on with things. But he needed a drummer. Uh, the guy who looked after the band needed a drummer. Now, he called me when he'd already called his list of contacts and asked me to call my list of contacts, and I reached out to people and everybody was already playing. So he thought, he called the agent back and I gave him the heads up, tell the agent that we can't do this, it's going to be too hard. So he did that and the agent basically said to him, sorry mate, tough it out, find anybody that you can. And I thought, oh shit, here we go. Anyway, mm. so I turn up on the night thinking everything's going to be all right on the night and this dude turned up in like a like a rusted old Suzuki Swift or what we call a Holden Barina over here. <laughs> and he looked like a cross between Andrew Stockdale from Wolfmother and Jim Morrison from The Doors. 
And <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm not judgmental, but most musicians, working musicians, look like me. I've got short hair and, you know, I look like as well. I'm a bloody accountant, you know. Um, so <laughs> usually, you know, we do, don't get me wrong, you know, we're all fairly sort of functional people. But this guy sort of turned up and he had desert boots on and microfiber pants on. And I think he was from a part of Brisbane, which is known as being a bit hippie, called West End. And um, he seemed like a lovely guy, though, and I was talking to him and I sat him down before the gig and I said, so out of these songs on this list that this band plays, which do you know? And he went through and he picked about, I don't know, about 40, enough, 40 or 50, enough for us to get through. Anyway, cut a long story short, we got about three songs into the first set. Now, keep in mind, when you're in a cover band, you play for about four or five hours. We got about three songs in and I quickly realized this guy didn't know what was going on. So I said, I really let, and I had my wireless kit on, so I went over to the guitarist and I said, we need to quit this fucking gig now and apologize and go because we're not going to get through this. Or, or words to the effect. And excuse my language to the listeners. Um, <laughs> so, I said, so we sort of thought, no, we can't because too many people were dancing and they were kind of looking at us. And then we thought, I said to him, okay, let's go and do something like 500 Miles, like the Proclaims, which is a really easy song. So we got through that. But anyway, we tried a few other songs. They didn't quite work, so we literally had to take a break. I sat the guy down and I said, okay, so when you say no, you know a song, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I know of it. Like he doesn't actually know how to play it right through from the beginning. So I said, give me a heads up then on this list. Which song do you know from the very beginning to the end? And you can play like as if you're a bloody metronome because that's what you are tonight. You're the beat that people are dancing to. Get it right. And he picked about five songs. I shit you not. No. So I kid you not, what we had to do was we played four sets of the same five songs. and No, really? Yeah, oh no, my this, God. this is the worst experience I've ever had, right? And I thought, I'm shot, like, because I'm going to be tarred with the same brush here. The guy whose band it was, he's going to be shot. And we finished our set. It was like 1 o'clock or one thirty, And the venue manager, because they always, the venue managers always have that steely-eyed look, you know, like they always have yeah. that look. Yeah. He saw me. Because I was the one talking to the state, talking to, I usually talk to people. You know, I'm the one who commends a microphone or what have you and talks between songs. And yeah. he made a beeline for me and he came up to me and I was ready, excuse my language again, listeners uh, and, and Heidi, but I was ready to have a brand new asshole rip for me. And he said, <laughs> you are the best band we have had through here in ages. I want no. you to... No, this is oh what he said. God. I shit you not. He goes, he goes, you are the best band we've had through here in ages. I want you to play for another another set like that. Because people are people are having a good time, and I'm like, I went back to the guy, and he just looked at me, and he just said, "What did he say?" And I said, "Well, when I regain consciousness, I'll share it with you." Because I was legitimately in shock. I thought we were going to get kicked out. Like, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, we got back up there, and we did the gig, finished off the set again, shook Andrew Stockdale backslash Jim Morrison's hand. Um, you know, everybody went their separate ways. Me and the other guy just stood there and. I just looked at him and said, well, some nights you just get through it. And I'll tell you something, you know, the moral of the story is the show's got to go on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, so that's... Well, you're very, like, solution-oriented, I must say. Oh, well, (laughs) I didn't... I was... I could see, you know, where you talked about every part of your body is panicking and you're thinking, what do I do in this situation here? Well... Even though it's not my band, I really like the guys that are in the band. And I felt like I was, you know, you're part of the team. Exactly what you're saying before, you're part of the jigsaw puzzle. And I didn't want them to get a bad rep. So I thought, I don't know what else we can do except for do this, play these five or six songs over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) And do little little extensions. So Adam, or I shouldn't say his name, but, or yeah, the guitarist is Adam. 
he did some guitar solos. I did some bass solos and just, you know, just did some funky, you know, you know, like, um, you know, Larry Graham sort of I stuff. I admit solos. Yeah. <laughs> did some of my funky bass Larry Graham stuff and all the rest of it. And the chicks are loving it. And I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, oh, I just want to get through this night, please. And I've got to say, I didn't enjoy myself one bit. But I look back on that night now for whenever I face a crisis and I think, you've just got to work with what you've got. Yes. You know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, look, that, that's my story. Thanks for letting me share that. I don't think I've ever shared. I've never shared that on air before. So there you go. I love it. And I think it's, uh, I can relate to so many aspects of that story. I think we all experience something of that sort. And it's, uh, it's a very, <laughs> very funny, but it's, it's funny because it's true. You know, it's funny because it's so I, I can really feel the panicking on that evening for you. I can oh, really it was, yeah. <laughs> I look back on it now. Even now I'm sort of getting like a bit sweaty just thinking about it because I remember the night. Yeah, me too. I, I remember the night and I remember thinking, I'm fucked, excuse my language. Like, I'm not going to get work again here. This guy yeah. and I are going to be tarred with this stuff. And the singer um, is a really cool, calm, collected guy. Like, nothing seems to phase him. I mean, there could be something really bad going on and you'd be, oh, well, whatever. That's just how it is. And, yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah. I'm, I'm caught between wanting to hurl insults at this young fella and wanting to help him because I'm pretty empathetic and I want to help people. But I was thinking, you've just put us in a really difficult situation here, kid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we got but through of it. course, and, and the worst thing is that you get in a band with one that's really that really sucks and the other guys are really professional and really good musicians because you're never going to get better than the weakest link. So it's, uh, that is so it's true. kind of dev- devastating. <laughs> that is so true. I've been in far too many bands now that didn't even get out of a rehearsal room because I realized if I go back to the agency in, in Brisbane here, and even I have gone back to the agency with bands that members of bands that I don't think were, let's call them cooperative components who didn't understand <laughs> what it took to be a working or a professional musician. And they, some, and they argue with you about it. Right. You know, so, and you're like, mm. what can I say to you? If you don't understand turning up, you've got to have spare batteries. You've got to have spare guitar cables. You've got to have spare drumsticks if you're a drummer, even a spare mm. drum seat. You know, that yeah. that level of detail. And, I mean, we're only playing locally, so you can stack all this stuff in your car and just leave it in there. You know, it's not like being a touring musician. Um, no. But that's the dedication that it takes, doesn't it? And that's what I think the listeners need to understand who aren't musicians is the the level of detail that you need to go to if you want to want to just put on a show, just something – that they might think is as simple as a performance. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to, to just perform that one song. I think it's a uh, very interesting to, to, uh, to just talk to people because I really do think that it's quite a, yeah, it's, it takes a lot more work and effort and energy. And like you say, detail, uh, than people might think. Mm-hmm. Well, look on that note, I have spoken far too much. This is the first time I've actually spoken this much. So, yeah, that's a first really? one. <laughs> Normally I'm just asking questions, but nice. I'm compelled to I'm have really a conversation. <laughs> well, I tell you what, this next bit, believe it or not, is actually my favorite part of the interviews that I do. And I've done something very special and unique for you. So, um, if you listen to some of my other podcasts, I normally only ask three questions, but I've actually got 10 for you because. Really? Yes, because I believe in your music so much and I believe that. I'm one of those people that, that like to get sort of, as I, I think I said it before, but behind the veil or lift the curtain a little bit. I think if people can get to know you, then they're going to find your music, even though it is very accessible and it's wonderful music, they're going to have that extra ingredient that's going to allow them to love what you do even more. 
So that's why I've developed 10 questions for you. So these are brand, three of the questions I do ask all of my interview subjects, but the other seven, they're brand spanking new. They're all about Heidi. Aha. Okay. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> all right. So we've got 10 questions and here's the first. Heidi, choose three words to describe yourself. Energetic. And what's it called? Uh, empath- empathy, empathetic. Empathetic, yeah, empathetic. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, how can you say that? I'm uh, e- easy to please. Easy to that's please. That's more than one word. <laughs> no, that's okay. We take that. It can be. I should. I should call it three statements to describe yourself. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Next question is: If you could go back to when you were eighteen and give yourself some advice. What do you think you'd say? Be calm. Everything is going to be fine. Great advice. I love that one. Yep. All right. Third question. What five guests, living or dead, would you invite to dinner? Jimi Hendrix. Um, cool. My mom. Nice. Uh, uh, my brother and my two stepchildren and Obama. Okay, nice. That's cool. That's six, but you're allowed to have as many as you like because it's your dinner. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) All right. So now we're into uncharted territory. I've never asked this next seven questions before. So here's the first of them. If you had a time machine and could visit any time in history, what time would you visit and why? Hmm. I think I would love to experience Woodstock in 69. Nice. Okay. And is there a particular reason? Is that because Hendrix is playing? Yes. Awesome. Yep. I might be there with you. I might jump on board for that one, actually, if that's yeah. okay. <laughs> you know. Take a ride. <laughs> I'll see him and, uh, uh, you know, definitely see him and Santana play. I love guitarists, so that's what I think I'd do. Mm. Okay. Next question. Question number five is, what is your most treasured possession and Why? I have a temple, uh, like a moped temple from 1970. And right. it's uh, it's one of the first ones made, uh, registered in Norway. So it's my most valuable possession. It's like one of those you have to like kickstart. <laughs> nice. And do you, so, uh, do you, can yeah. you actually drive that around? Like it's not like a vintage, a vintage license, which means you can only drive it at certain times or is it a daily thing for you? No, I could. If it, it has to be uh, like not ice on the roads, <laughs> but oh, yes. uh, in the summer I could I could drive it, and it's uh, yeah, I love it. No, nice. it feels okay. it's. I kind of stink like fuel afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I can really from the pictures that I've seen of you, I can definitely see you on a moped. You definitely would. You see do, that. yeah. Yes, you can definitely <laughs> see that. Yeah. What's your um? What's your daily driver apart from that? Do you drive a Skoda or something like that? No, I I ride my bike or my tempo or a car. So it's not a yeah. I do not. If you ask me, if I'm riding a scooter, was that it? Oh no! What what car do you normally drive? I'm just trying to see car, the juxtaposition. Car. Oh sorry. You're right. <laughs> no, no, I had to, I don't actually own a car, so it's what a whatever I can borrow. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah, we have we have. Um, I suppose you have the same issue in Norway to an extent because so much of it is, I wouldn't say uninhabitable, but sparsely populated. But we've certainly got that issue here in Australia where 
the you know I don't know what the figure is, but I'd put it as high as ninety or ninety five percent of us live in major capital cities, um, mm. and we're all spread out. So for example, I live about fifty kilometres away from Brisbane and um, fifty kilometres away from the Gold Coast, so I'm in between. So and you can't actually have a moped or a scooter on the highways here because of course they don't really mix well with semi trailers and yeah <laughs> yeah. Although you do see an occasional individual game enough to do it even though it's highly illegal but uh they take their life into their own hands <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but it's the same in norway in the where i'm from in the northern parts it's very like you you can drive for eight hours to do one gig and then drive home at night it's crazy it's the the distances is quite it's common to just take a day trip for four hour driving somewhere Sounds... and just go back in the evening yeah it's yeah. very so and so the, the i think it was 18 because you have to be 18 to have the driver's license and i had i was 18 and two days <laughs> when i i took my driver's license because it was necessary it's necessary and everybody yes. yeah it's yeah. necessary well i think it's yeah we've got that i have spoken to some some friends from norway uh in the past and from what i understand um yeah particularly once you go north of oslo and the like it is quite remote and you do need to have things like access to a, a, a license and if you want to do a day trip often it does take half the day to get there you spend a couple of hours there and then you spend the rest of the day into the night driving back and that's very similar to australia mm. yeah yeah very similar yeah, to yeah i guess so yeah all right my next question mm. is you can take three items to a deserted island for a week what would you take and why could it be a live item? Of course it can. Anything you like. <laughs> Anything I like. You're thinking very laterally now, I can sense. <laughs> I just have to get into the core of this question. <laughs> uh, I would bring my guitar. Yes. Um, I, of course, and I would bring... Uh, hmm, I think I also would bring a knife. <laughs> Gotcha. So I could do some speaking. Yep. And uh, if I could bring a live thing, I, I would bring back my – I had – when I was a kid, I had my own farm going on, a very small farm with two sheep and seven hens and, yep. and two pigs and two horses and stuff like that. And I had one sheep who was amazing, an amazing, uh, amazing creature. And I would like to bring him to this island as well if I could Lovely. bring him to life because yeah. he, he died of old age. <laughs> No, very thoughtful. Yeah, no, that's a good one right there. Yeah, yeah, very sentimental choice there too, I might yeah, bring my own sheep, isn't that a great, <laughs> good companionship? Well, you've, you got, you've got the knife, you've got the knife to go fishing or what have you, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you know. It's quite a romantic picture, me and my sheep and my guitar, it's like it. These too, yeah, no, it's, as I, I say, very sentimental. Song. Yes, yes, inspired to write a song about it, yes, on the next one. On the next uh, solo album from yourself or, or with the band. Yeah. It's called Me and My Sheep. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Okay. The next question. This is, I think we're up to question number seven. Yes, lucky seven. Name a book that you have read that you would recommend. And what would you recommend that book? Uh I read a lot of, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, guess this, but... I, I usually read a lot of books, but it's it's usually just to keep my English going. So I always read English books, but I just have to go and see what it's called. Uh, I would really recommend The Muttley Crew by oh, yes. The Dirt. Love that book. I really yes. like it. Yes. It's been some years since I read it, but I remember I was just shocking and funny and uh, and really interesting. 
I agree. I must have read that book three or four times now. And if I need a bit of a pick-up because I've had a tough day in the office or whatever it'll be, you can bet your bottom dollar that'll be one of the things that I turn to, just to read some of those hilarious anecdotes from that book. Who would have believed yeah, and the, yeah, the stories that those guys have got is just incredible. I mean, there's got to be some stories that they've omitted that were not safe for work or weren't legally cleared at that time that might have obtained legal clearance now that I hope that they do. So I really hope they – there's talk about them turning it into a movie. That's what I last heard. Yeah. That, that would just be a great movie. And I think I have no – like I don't have a relationship with the songs in the band, but but the, I really like the, the, the fact that they were – the true rock stars and it's it's very like that they are alive still today it's a sensation isn't it <laughs> oh it is it is yeah yeah it's a bit of a shame that they, they stopped touring uh i still think that they had a lot to offer i didn't listen to i think their last record was released in 2008 called the saints of la and i i've got to be frank i didn't quite get into that one there but then i've always got my copy of too fast for love which i on vinyl which i do spin regularly love mm. that record yeah yeah. yeah, I actually did. I was in a Motley Crue cover band a few, year, a few years ago, but I, and I have to learn this, like, wow. okay. Dr. Feelgood and Girls, Girls, Girls. <laughs> it was very strange. Oh, my so. God. I can see you doing that yeah. as well. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, mm. gosh. Another, just a quick story. A couple of years ago, I tried to start my own band covers, and we decided that we'd be a bit more commercial and do Katy Perry songs, Tove Lowe, Rihanna, that sort of stuff. And um, yeah. couldn't quite get it to work out, probably fair to say. They just weren't um, – couldn't find a female vocalist to really fit the bill. But, God, I would have loved to have been able to perform some Motley Crue songs in that set because they would. Girls, Girls, Girls would sound great with the wonderful vocal that you've got. So ah. <laughs> so that actually, that's a question for you. Have you got any recordings of yourself singing these songs from, you know, from the sound desk when you're performing them live? Probably. I, I worked with this drummer and he recorded every gig that we ever did. And I, I played in a lot of cover bands. I was also in an ACDC cover band. And, and I think there is probably a recording somewhere. And when Pristine is like on the, the world's biggest band or something like that, this is going to go for a very good amount of money <laughs> oh, it will. in the boot it will. So, so tell me, because as you know, ACDC are Australian and they're very important to us Australians, but are you a, uh, more in the Bon Scott school or the Brian Johnson school? I can relate to the vocals of Bon Scott more than Brian Johnson, I would say, but I really love them both. And yeah, I really voice. love... Uh, he, he, I love... I love both people and singers and who has this charismatic, uh, like this significant sound to their voice or to their work or to their like persons. And, and uh, Brian Johnson has, of course, this, uh, this very, his image is his voice and uh, I really like it. So, um, yeah. What do you think? I, of, I don't want, I don't want to choose. <laughs> what did you think of Axel joining ACDC for those songs when Brian couldn't do them? I've heard so many things about Axel that I really was very just like um, I wanted to see how he would work in a band again. Uh, yes. So I really felt more concerned for the other guys in ACDC more than uh, <laughs> than actually. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> you're echoing were. a lot of people's I've, thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think his voice is very good. So and uh, and I don't know who if if there. Axel couldn't do it then they had to go in a total another direction that they have to choose a woman or a, like a completely different singer I think you have to just either you have to just go for the sound image that you created or you just go for a total different different thing 
Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and yeah. more more of a Brian Johnson figure, I guess. Well, I hope they get Brian back, to be honest. But if they keep Axel, I think that's also a wonderful thing because I saw uh, Guns N' Roses when they toured Australia and they went to the Brisbane show, and, geez, that was a good show. Um, it didn't quite feel like 1991 or 1992 all over again, but uh, they played for, I don't know whether it was two hours, it was near to two hours, and bloody good band. He's actually, you know, with the greatest of respect to Matt Sorum and... Um, um, who, what's the other driver's name? Sorry, um, Adler, Stephen Adler, um, yeah. and um, oh, I think think we could probably do with bringing I- Iggy back into the band. Uh, Iggy, God, what am I talking about? Izzy, Jesus, um, Izzy, Izzy yeah. back into the band. But... <laughs> Iggy, back to the band. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be like a good mix. <laughs> that would be. But his his musicians that he's got around him, Michelle Reese on the keyboards. The musicians he's got around him at the moment are just fantastic. Um, really put on a good show, although. I can't remember the drummer's name. One of my mates who's a very good drummer here in Brisbane that I've played in a few bands with, um, he mentioned that he probably played a little too hard too consistently, whereas Matt Sorum and Stephen Adler had... Stephen Adler, of course, has got that famous Adler swing, as I've read it referred to on the internet, but they yeah. moved in groove a little bit more. I can't remember the guy's name. He's Mike Ferreira or something. Um, very good drummer, but probably just too consistent, whereas rock bands sort of move in groove a little bit more. But that was just an observation. Yeah. No, no criticism whatsoever on that one. There, it was just an observation. It's very nice that they are back on the road. I think. I think it's a, it's like the comeback age nowadays. It's people are either dying or they're going back on tour. That's true. Yeah. Really, really, really prefer the last one. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree, and it's well. Yeah, I mean, it's. I was a massive, still am, of course, uh, David Bowie fan. I'm actually such a big fan of David Bowie that. My wife bought me, uh, it was really for the kids, but she bought me a bull terrier dog, um, like a um, fluffy toy, but it had the uh. Ziggy Stardust, I think it's Ziggy Stardust, lightning bolt across his eye, you know, across the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that should go so far as to, and, and we, uh. um, the kids love uh, Peter and the Wolf that he narrated, David Bowie narrated, that gets a massive airing in our house actually, that one. Ah, oh, uh, that's good. Yeah. So I tell you, I'll move on because we've only got, we've still got three questions to go. Here we go. And the next one's a good one, actually. I'll be really interested as to your your thoughts on this one. If you could obtain an audience with the Dalai Lama, what question would you ask? If I could attain, what did you say? Uh, Sorry. If if you could obtain an audience, meaning like if you could have an audience with the Dalai Lama, just you you and him, one-on-one, what question would you ask? Um, I think I would ask him how he could keep, if he could give me any tips on how to keep calm and peaceful, uh, even when my head is just twisting around <laughs> and go like yeah. crazy. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's it. That's great. I mean, it's a, it's a practical advice that you're looking to receive there. That's what that yes. is. You know, I, you're not after an ethereal, you're not asking an ethereal question about what is the meaning of life or what is the purpose of the universe? You're asking about how you can keep it here and now, which in a lot of ways is the meaning of life really, isn't it? Excuse me. Yeah, and, how do you, how do you yeah, keep your shit together? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think the the question would, uh, as you say, I think it would be reflecting on life itself as well. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a trick question because I think it's a, um, people always wonder that. And I think people seek a, a bigger, uh, meaning and and often the bigger meaning can just be in the in the now i think yes no agreed very profound um okay so we're up to question nine 
Describe your happiest memory that you're willing to share with the audience. My happiest memory on top of my head is when I was about 14 years old. As I told you earlier in, in the interview, I had my own, uh, I was a pretty stubborn kid. So I really wanted a horse when I was seven and I, I just uh, I got one when I was 10 <laughs> my own horse and also <laughs> two sheep and two pigs and seven hands and my dad told me okay it's you can have this but you have to take the responsibility you have to get up every morning and you have to be, you have it has to be your thing yeah yes so uh, yes and and it was it was very uh, it's an amazing period of my life and I remember one time one of my horses ran away and I found her in a field uh, about two kilometers from my home. And she had no saddle on, nothing like uh, what you call it on the head, the, the things you hold Br- onto. Bridle, is it? I'm not a horse person. Yeah, but bri- bridle, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I only know the Norwegian word. And I just jumped off. Uh, just, I didn't jump off. I jumped on her back and uh, we rode home. Nice. And that was, yeah, that was an amazing thing. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this when I grew up as well. As one of the most, I didn't think I didn't think it uh, right there and then, but afterwards I think uh, this was uh, one of the most amazing experiences I ever experienced in my life. Just to yes. be, it felt like complete freedom. <laughs> Just to yes. sound more, more cliche. <laughs> yeah. No, I can under, I can appreciate that. I'm sure the listener can as well because, you know, how old did you say you were? You're 14. And, 14, and yeah. 14 is a tough age, let's face it. You know, I mean, you know, they say your body's through, going through changes, mentally you're going through all sorts of changes, but you have a lot of expectation you as 14 as well because you've, you finally, you know, you're leaving, well, you have left childhood and you're moving into young adulthood. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I really had like a tough time growing up being, I felt, I always, I always felt like a weird kid. You know, I never had any big f- amount of friends and uh, I always had my my animals my horses and my yes. sheep and and I felt more uh, attached to them than than to people at some point because I I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere and I felt like being uh, growing up in a small village it was like kind of um, the the main thing that we learned uh, as kids uh, is like this this unwritten rule that you have to stay average you have to do yes. what everybody else does. You have, you don't speak up. You don't sing. You don't want to stand on a stage. You don't want to be charismatic. You just keep average and everything will be fine. And I didn't understand this. So instead, I just felt like I was something wrong with me. Something was, I was just not like everyone else. So that's why I just, I held my own, uh, I did my own thing. <laughs> and yes. I think this, uh, just interacting with the animals was just kind of, it, it saved me. In a way, I think you've touched on a really important point there, and it's something that a lot of animal rights activists talk about, which is that you know I've mentioned that with without musicians, but I especially think it's so that without animals we die a terrible loneliness of spirit. You yeah, know? and we've got yeah, to treat animals better than what we do at the moment on the planet. There's no two ways about it, and uh, yeah, mm. it's uh, you know that's certainly a, a much broader discussion there. But yeah, no, sorry, I mean I'm just I think you know you, you, it's a very it's. Yeah, as I say, you've touched on something very important, but it's also a very sentimental memory that I think a lot of people do go through difficulties when they're going through, um, you know, that that mid-teenage years. I was no different, you know. Instead of, although, you know, instead of having animals, my friend was uh, heavy metal. Well, you know, what I referred to as heavy metal now, but wasn't back then. So bands like Faith No More and Primus and the like. 
Um, mm. That was mm. music that I retreated into when you don't fit in somewhere, you know. Um, yeah. There was only a few places that I felt really comfortable. It was either out on the football field or listening to Faith No More or Primus, you know what I mean? And yeah. For you, that was clearly... And thank yeah. About, you know, with your animals there. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it, it, it was kind of the, the only way to get through. And I think, and thank God for music and thank God for 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 animals and, and thank God that there is something that we can seek to when we are at that age. Because it was, uh, and some, <laughs> that's interesting as well, because some of the songs on uh, the upcoming album is exactly about this and how, um, like this one song, it's about when you're 18 in a small village, if you want to be like top of the game and want to be the village kind of quarterback person yes, and you want to be the cool, coolest guy around, you have to own your own car. And if you own your own car, then you're just set. That's the most coolest thing. Everybody wants to hang around with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was yes. about 15 when I experienced like this, this aura around this guy who owned his own car. And it was like this old car who barely ran, but... <laughs> But it was was a car. (laughs) Yeah, but it was a car. And it was like every girl wanted to date him. And every every guy was just wanted to hang around and be sitting in his back seat to drive around. (laughs) It was so (laughs) crazy that (laughs) I'm sure you also has this one of the the one character. But yeah, so I've always been looking around uh, my surroundings and, and seeing these cool guys and popular girls and just wishing that I was something like them but i wasn't because i was just different and i wanted different things but yeah it's uh yeah it's very interesting to look back at i think yeah no it is and it, it look, I, never, it's, I never had my own car so <laughs> <I was> not... <laughs> no look I, I think i had to buy my own car i think i borrowed my my, my parents lime green suzuki swift which i promptly then plastered <laughs> with like it had like dead Kennedy stickers on the back and fishbone and all these sort of bands from back then. <laughs> you know? So this is 20 years ago, mind you. So 20 years ago, and I had these stickers on the back. And I used to go to Manly Beach quite a bit or the beach over here um, quite a bit. And um, yeah, and so I felt like I was a man about then. But God, I think I was about 19 or something like then. So, so I, went, I, went, I, went through, I went through a boarding school. So we had a completely different dynamic in a boarding house. Um, yeah. It was more like... Um, at times, it was more like bloody Lord of the Flies. You know that book, Lord of the Flies? Yeah. <laughs> it was more like that at times. Now, it didn't feel like that at the time, of course, but now that I look back, it was like, shit, it's a bit like that. I'm glad I wasn't, you know, the character Piggy or something like that out of that book. So, yeah. You know, but um, God, in some ways, I think, you know, you don't get through your teenage years. You survive your teenage years. Yes, and I'm not looking forward to my stepchildren becoming like 13, 14 because I, um, I'm really, I really don't know how I could help. <laughs> Just yeah. I know that they're also going to. I, I guess you also think this about your kids, but it's uh, definitely it's kind of a. Uh, it's it's horrible to think what um kind of what kind of emotions that these children will have to go through, and they have to go through it, and it's. It's yeah, awful. I know. Well, just because I've got two daughters, and I'm obviously a man, um, I just, I just think, <laughs> shit. I hope I can be the father that I need to be for them when they're going through all these trials and tribulations, because it's inevitable. And I just hope that they avoid the pointy end of some of that bullshit that you're hearing about, like bullying and the like. And you know, I just, yeah. you know, um, both of my daughters, I think, you know, my, uh, um, my wife's half Filipino, half Croatian, and uh, she's definitely got that Croatian temper. 
Um, her father's from Croatia. So I think both of my daughters have got a little bit of that. So I just hope if ever they get picked on or anything like that, they bring out that Croatian temper and they tell everybody yeah. just to back off, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. I think that, I think that is a very good, uh, good thing to have like th- some sort of like, this is my boundaries. Do not, do not cross it. This is me. And this is, yeah, it's better than to be, be like very not, what's it called? The opposite. Oh, it is. It is. And I think like, look, God, God help me for saying this because I know this has been broadcast, but my only advice to any kid that's being bullied, and this is not advice I'd probably even give to my own kids, but it'd be advice that I'd probably want. It'd be advice that I want to give, okay, is that if you're getting bullied, punch them as hard as you can because it works every time I've seen it. If you someone's bullying you and you punch them as hard as you can the first time, you might lose the fight, but I tell you what, you've proven that you're not going to put up with any bullshit. You know? So... That's only, that's I don't only, know if this is, yeah, <laughs> this is going to any of these pedagogic uh, books, but <laughs> <laughs> oh well, look. how to become? Uh, yeah. Well, I I kind of agree with you there. I think it also is very important that you learn to. Uh, I think bullying is uh, as I try and teach my own children is that um, people always uh, or sometimes have the lack of words. So that's why they yeah. either hit or they they bite or they say cruel things or something like that. It's it, it can be just a lack of other words. So so it only proves that that person is unsecure, not secure at all. So um, yes, well that's the big theme, isn't it, with bullies? Is that they are very insecure people and they do that because they have to make themselves feel good about their shitty lives. Um, mm. You know, I just think God, because I remember at school. Um, this is in the deep, dark 90s, of course. Um, you know, there's no internet back then or anything like that. And so your resources were like the school minister or the school reverend or something like that. And you're not going to talk to him you know, no. if there's a problem. <laughs> if you're going to go to a clergyman and tell them what the hell's going on, you know what I mean? So you just got through yeah. shit. You know what I mean? You just dealt with it as best as you possibly could. And you just, as I say, you just hoped you got out the other side. And obviously I did, you know what I mean? And I certainly was, was uh, you know, fortunate to have a, you know, I had a good education and went to a decent school and was able to participate in what I wanted to participate in, but nothing ever drew me like music did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Music and playing playing sport, I love both of those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's I think it's one of the things that I we could that I could just bring from my own teenagers teenage years is that uh things feel so devastating and so completely dark in these situations. It can be small situations that really feel like I, I'm ashamed and I'm, yes. I, I'm I'm embarrassed and stuff like that. But I wish that somebody just could come into my brain and just tell me that just just uh, take it easy. This is not the end of the world. It's going to be fine. Don't think about it. Don't uh, yes. use up the empty on on negative. Uh, people or situations and and i think this is the most difficult thing when you're like 16 years old to to keep that in mind yeah because that's the thing about being a teenager is you're dealing with the real world stuff that adults deal with but you don't have the life schools life skills to cope with it yeah exactly and exactly what you're articulating like we all have sort of learnt as adults to basically just either ignore it or you know, we work in corporate environments or we work in environments where that sort of toler- behaviour will usually lead to somebody being sacked, which means that they don't earn money. So a lot of that behaviour mm. doesn't exist because there are these formal constructs that lead to real outcomes. But mm. when kids are being kids or what have you, you know, it depends on how manipulative they are and how much they can get away with uh, a lot mm. of the time. And, yeah, you, you do need a 
you need to be either a really strong individual who can stand within your own truth very early on in your life or, you know, what else is there? Just yeah. lucky. <laughs> lucky you get through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I say, I think this is the, the, this is the, not the only reason, but most of the reason why what the difference between me at 35 and me at 16 is that I, I feel the same person, but I just deal with, with problems different ways. Yes. Yeah, it's a really good way to frame it. Dealing with problems in different ways. It's not that the problems have gone away. You've just got the life skills or the, you know, whatever it might be, yeah. the wisdom to, to manage it and to make better decisions yeah. about things that are happening. And I say that all the time. It's never what happens. It's how you deal with things. That's the most important thing. Yes. Yeah. You know. It is. All right. We're 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 at our last question. Okay. And this is a good one. Okay. So it sort of has echoes of what we've been talking about. So... If you were called on to provide advice to world leaders, what would you say? Uh, my first uh, thought is just uh, don't think so much about power and money and start thinking more of, of people and uh, humanity. But I think this is very difficult <laughs> to get yeah. through. I don't think they would listen to me at all. <laughs> why, why don't, why don't you think? I, why don't you think they'd listen to something like that? Though, because you're right. You're not wrong because they simply don't listen. But why is it that you think that they don't listen to such good advice like that? I think I think the most dangerous thing in the world is power and the taste of power and and money. And and I, I really think that that uh, it can really blind people. Um, the 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 superiorness and the, the like the leadership in the world they have so so much other than than the the humanity too I, I think it could be like devastating to have too much power and I think that could completely blind them and I, that's why I don't think they would listen to my advice <laughs> yeah no it's a fair call and something I totally agree with and it's probably the same advice that I would give too it'd be just think about the next generation think about your own children even if you've got children mm, or think yeah, about other I'm... people's children if you don't have your own you know think about the next generation and the consequences of the decisions that you're making now and how we're going to have to manage them yeah i agree and i really i really think that there is too little humanity in the world and i think the the world leaders have have a a big job to do and i, I don't think they i'm i'm i want to stay positive and think that things can change and and uh, people will just begin to treat each other with respect and dignity and uh, and just teach our children to be kind and and not judge and just see everyone equal but i yeah yep. you know <laughs> no i totally agree yeah it's profound and you know it's um yeah sometimes you do shake your head and you know it's not a case of burying your head in the sand but it's hard to read the news a lot of the time isn't it these days you know? i know i can't i can't that would be devastating for me it's one of the my most <laughs> like naive things that I can watch the news. I can't. I know that there is war out there, but I don't. It it can really ruin my day to to see it does, what is happening. It? In the You're world. right, though. Mm. You you do read about it. What's happening to people uh, in parts of the world, and they're helpless. And as a, you know, they're raising fam. People are raising families, and children are trying to go to school and get educated, or they're just trying to get bloody basic amenities like food and water and all the rest of it. And it's denied for whatever reason it might be. And you don't know the complete ins and outs of it and you have to talk to someone who does understand something with a bit more detail than what the news item or the newsreel is promoting and you think, holy shit, humanity, how did we get here? Yeah, I know. We have to reboot. Yeah, no, we do. 
I don't, I don't know how we do it though. I mean, I don't. I, I, you and I are talking about it, of course, but you know, I mean, the thing about politicians is they are the people that have been elected or put into a position where they do have the responsibility to have these answers. Yeah. You know, and and they often actually, well, we've just seen they regularly don't. So, so. Yeah. What do we do? Hopefully, hey. hopefully some. <laughs> that got very serious very quickly, didn't it? <laughs> How did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> All these bloody questions that I'm asking. <laughs> you know. Well, it's it's good to just to have uh, to be thinking about this. I think it's important. And I, I my and my youngest daughter, she is now uh, seven years old. But when she was four. She she came up to me and she told me she came from kindergarten and she uh, she said to me that um, do we don't want to let poor people inside our car uh, and I said well it's my boyfriend's car and uh, and I said why well they told me in kindergarten that you you won't you shouldn't let poor people inside our car because they can take things and they can be mean to you. And I said to her, well, I think there can be rich people and I think there could be yeah. poor people who really can take things and are mean. And she just had this genius moment of where she just looked up at me and just say, well, how do you know the difference? <laughs> and yes. I just, huh, good question. <laughs> and I think I said something. I just just get like put off yeah. by that question. But I, yeah. And I just said something like, I think you could just see it in their eyes. And she just went, oh, okay. okay. There you go. Yeah. I yeah. know well, it's I, my daughter, my eldest daughter is at that age where she's questioning everything as well. And um, mm. I don't have, just being frank, I don't have a lot of the answers to the questions that she asked. But she, and she hasn't even started to ask questions about the world yet. They're just questions about why we do certain things like why do we have dinner when we have dinner? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> God help me. But some of the times I'm just thinking, can we just bloody eat dinner? <laughs> Instead of asking questions yeah, about it, you know what I mean. You, you're a parent; you understand what I'm yeah. saying. You know, yeah. it's 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 it's. How old are your stepchildren? Uh, seven and eleven. Okay, so they're kind of beyond what we call the witching hour. You know what the witching hour yeah. is, though, don't you? You know. No, but I could guess. Oh my God! Between five o'clock and eight o'clock, and I know it's not an hour. I know there's three hours there, but five o'clock and eight o'clock, it is just bedlam <laughs> you're just yeah. you're fighting a losing battle on all fronts you know what i mean like <laughs> you're trying to get them to clean up their toys you're trying to clean the kitchen at the same time god i'm sounding really domesticated and and stuff but still it's you know what do they say yeah the, the struggle is real <laughs> the struggle is real but i think the struggle will change the older they get now now it's like uh, she the youngest one is just experiencing so many of the adult feelings like jealousy and and anger for no reason she has like this period where and i have to just be the grown-up and try to explain to her what she feel and give her like these tools to handle them and it's it's quite different from when she was four (laughs) where she was angry because she couldn't have this toy in the store and now she's just have these big feelings it's which is it's crushing it's kind of like it's kind of like you can have meaning meaningless anger when they're four or you can have meaningful anger when they're 11 you know which is all ahead of me oh yeah yeah. No. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's different kind of now I really have to think about what I'm saying because I really want her to to get like these tools because yeah, it's you need them. <laughs> yes, yes. Just to rec- recognize these emotions, recognize what she's feeling and and just placing them that where she can actually feel in control in a way. I don't know. <laughs> so 
Look, I know I know we're drawing near to the end of the discussion, but I've got a, a lot of these questions just coming to me now. So, because you're 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 now in the role of a parent, you're a parent. Do you look at your parents differently? You know, when you're a kid and you feel that anger and that frustration toward your own parents, do you sort of is your view on that changed? Um, yes, I would say that I. Um, but I don't know if that has anything to do with uh, with getting children in my life or not. But but growing up, I I really see my parents differently. Uh, I really have I have great parents. They're very kind and very easygoing, and we love to laugh a lot. And it's a, they have great sense of humor, and so so they really helped me in this difficult time and period when I was a teenager. But so the the difficulties came from the society around me and the, and the classmates yes. and the and the village. Uh, but they were just uh, kind. Oh, kind it's to lovely. Me. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, it is. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people but, get a bit unlucky. Yeah. So you're right. You go. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Now, but I see them now as a like I see them more as who they are in a way. When I was just a teenager or like growing up, they were just my parents, and that was that. Yes. <laughs> and now I get they're to the know, gate, know they're them the gatekeepers of all knowledge and decision making. That's what they are, and they are the ones <laughs> yeah. that will determine whether or not you can go and watch that movie or watch that band. And you're like, oh, I want to go and watch that band. Or that uh, band. Yeah. You don't understand yeah. what danger lurks beyond the bus stop, but you know, <laughs> you just yeah, I know. I know. I know. I try to do things a bit differently with with my girls, even now. Like my eldest, she's not God, she's not even at school. I'm talking to her as if she's like a you know teenager or something. But being she's three years, eleven months, almost four, and she questions me a lot about things. And I say, my comeback, my baseline comeback is because I'm your father, and right now I know what's best, and you're just going to have to trust me. <laughs> which yeah. of, which of course yeah, gets I met use with a lot, a lot of disdain. Too. <laughs> yeah, I know. It doesn't help because know, she I, still argues no. with me. <laughs> She d- just wants to be angry. That's uh, <laughs> that's all right. That's right. That's right. As I said, that meaningless anger, and it's like, okay, all right, let's do this routine. It's witching hour. Let's do it. Let's just get it over and done. Yeah. You know, the, the, I, I should write a book about the phases of the witching hour. You know. Yeah. You know, five o'clock is like um, what are they called? Denial, and by about seven o'clock, acceptance starts to kicking. The bedtime is coming. <laughs> Yes, I know. <laughs> but they're so tired after a whole day at kindergarten or whatever they are. It's a, it's kind of a work day. Yeah, they do. But they fight sleep. Kids fight sleep. You know what I'm talking about? Like they don't want to go to sleep because the world still holds, and of course it does for us too, yeah. but for them it especially holds awe and wonder. So they don't want to miss a minute. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> they're in the moment. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I better let you go and grab a cup of tea or coffee before your next interview. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this, um, Heidi. This oh, has this been superb. No, so amazing. So, um, yeah, I don't know what to say really. What's left to say? I just I love your music. Um, I probably love it. I definitely love it even more now that I've had a chat to you. Um, I can't wait for the album to be released so as I can share it with people. Um, oh, I, thank you so much. It was a very lovely chat to you uh, with you. I, I really like uh, you have these questions, which gets my mind just rolling around uh, bigger meanings and stuff. And you are, yeah, it's very, very nice talking to you. Fantastic. Well, and, and on that note, I really hope you guys tour Australia soon. I don't know how it could be, you know, or if or when it could be arranged, but I really hope it does happen. Yeah, me too. No worries. All right. Well, as I said, thank you so much. Um, all the very best. And um, look, I'll um, I'll post our um, podcast and I'll um, or our discussion via our podcast, and I'll tag you in on social media. Yes. Perfect. Thank you so much. No worries. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. 
My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith and that interview subject was Heidi Solheim from the Norwegian outfit Pristine. Thanks so much for listening.